You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer here with Will Doran and Lynn Bonner, also of the NNO. And it is uh, Friday, Inauguration Day, as we're recording this. Just uh, as we we sit here, it's a few hours since uh, Donald Trump has taken the oath of office and become the uh, new president of the United States. And we won't get too much into that because I'm sure by this point, uh, if you've been watching the news in any fashion, you're probably uh, drowning in coverage of that. But uh, we did want to mention a little bit of the local angles um, we had uh, some debate among the Democrats in our congressional delegation as to whether or not to uh, to show up to the inauguration. And uh, if either of you want to jump in as to, to what we've heard from the congressional delegation uh, this week about whether they were going or not. Yeah, well, um, uh, David Price uh, from here in the Triangle area came out with a uh, statement. I, I think he used the word uh, disgusted by, you know, some of Trump's comments, but said nevertheless he would be attending, uh, you know, considered it, I guess, a, uh, a civic duty. Yeah, and he waffled about it for a little bit. Like, initially, um, he, I think, put out a statement saying he was considering, and then about six hours later uh, came out with a statement that explained what his plans actually were going to be. Yeah, and I, I don't know about enough about the, you know, inner machinations of politics to, <laughs> to know what goes into that kind of decision, whether, you know, to, to take that symbolic a step to sit it out. Um, but in the end, uh, of the state's three Democrats, uh, he, he decided to attend. Uh, Alma Adams and G.K. Butterfield decided not to attend. Um, they, they skipped out on it. Um, and again, you know, uh, I, I guess their reasoning is their own. Uh, did you see much of, uh, did anyone else see what, what they had said about their reasons for I noticed the timing was not long after the uh, flare-up on Twitter between John Lewis and Donald Trump, where Lewis uh, yeah. you know, made the case that he felt like Trump's presidency was not legitimate and therefore he was not going to be attending. And uh, Adams and Butterfield only made their announcements this week a couple of days after uh, John Lewis came out and, and sort of talked about his plans. And I think they both referenced the John Lewis uh, Twitter back and forth with uh President Trump uh, as one as one of the reasons they they weren't going to go. Yeah, they were among I think seventy members of Congress was the total at last count of those that weren't going, and that may have changed since the uh, the actual inauguration has taken place. That was the number they were quoting in the uh, news reports this morning. Um, but that's uh, sort of the case on the uh, congressional side. Obviously, the Republicans are uh, putting out statements, um, left and right on their support for, uh, for Trump as presidency and their, their best wishes as he takes office. Uh, Phil Berger, the leader of the Senate was tweeting, uh, you know, hashtag make America great again, the, the Trump slogan today. Uh, a number of politicians were, uh, including I think House Speaker Tim Moore sending out pictures of themselves, uh, with, uh, Donald Trump, uh, over the course of the campaign. And, and of course our Republican members of Congress, as well as the two members of our, uh, Senate delegation here in North Carolina were, were present and were, uh, expressing their Congratulations to to the new president, um, and then we had a number of um, local Republicans that were headed up to Washington. I talked to a couple of them last week, and uh, a lot of them were uh, longtime Trump supporters or, or Trump supporters who kind of came around as the um, campaign continued and, and the other Republican candidates had dropped out. Uh, they were eager to see history, eager to sort of be there at what they thought was going to be the start of a, a really great presidency and, and something that they uh, are very excited to see. Then um, there was a group from the, the NC Republican Party, I think led by Dallas Woodhouse, that was headed up there to, to go to some of the balls, uh, including the North Carolina ball, which uh, is uh, 
something that our, our colleague Anna Douglas wrote about uh, and apparently has uh, moonshine, um, various types of Southern cuisine. Uh, you'll appreciate this well. Foothills Beer out of Winston-Salem oh, is uh, <laughs> one of the sponsors and is making sure that, that while they're in D.C., they're they're consuming only uh, the, the best of North Carolina craft beer instead of, you know, whatever beers are available from D.C. breweries, if they even have such things. <laughs> I'm sure they do. That's yeah. good. Uh, I know there was a Florida house in D.C. because I grew up in Florida and I went there one time and they were serving orange juice because you know florida but uh i, th- I think uh beer is uh much more appropriate for uh the capital city <laughs> yeah exactly um and then this is uh, apparently sponsored by a group called the uh, something like detective north carolina society in dc which uh, i guess is all the uh i don't know if you call them expatriates but former uh north carolina natives who, who live and work in dc and, and get together with other north carolinians so this is a, a big black tie affair kind of similar to the inaugural ball that uh we had for the governor here and that's on saturday night i believe so maybe some pictures and videos and stuff from that for those of us who are not wealthy or fancy enough to be up in dc for that uh so that's happening uh Back closer to home, uh, still a, a pretty busy week on the, the state politics front. Uh, we have more and more sparring over Medicaid expansion here in North Carolina. Um, we found out on leave Saturday night, late Saturday night, uh, there was the announcement from the federal uh, judge uh, who was tasked with ruling on the legislature's uh, desire to stop Roy Cooper from trying to, to move ahead with uh, Medicaid expansion. So that put that on hold and prevented uh, the Obama administration from doing anything with Roy Cooper's request before Obama left office earlier today. So obviously the, the folks in charge of looking at that request, should that uh, stay be lifted, are, are going to be very different and looking at it in a, in a much different way. Uh, going forward. Um, Will, you had a fact check on, on Roy Cooper and his Medicaid statements this week? I did. Well, you know, as as this legal battle goes on over, you know, who has the right to accept the expansion or not, um, there's also obviously the political battle of both sides trying to, uh, you know, convince people that, you know, their arguments are better, whether it's that, hey, it's the fiscally responsible decision not to accept the expansion, as the Republicans are saying, or, you know, from the Democrat side, hey, we're already paying for this thing, you know, why not go ahead and accept it? And uh, that was what we looked into um, from uh, Roy Cooper this week. He said that North Carolinians are already paying for this Medicaid expansion, even though the state hasn't accepted it, not getting anything from the program, but we're still paying for it. So that was kind of his push is, um, you know, telling people, you know, why not go ahead and, uh, and accept it. <laughs> so yeah. we looked into it and um, did some some crunching of IRS data and all that sort of, you know, really boring stuff that we do at PolitiFact so that <laughs> normal people the rest don't, of us have, don't to. have to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So many Excel spreadsheets. Um, but yeah, we uh, uh, we came to a, a rough estimate using some some studies from the uh, Obama administration's Health and Human Services Department, as well as from the IRS that uh, North Carolinians are already paying well north of a billion dollars a year for the Medicaid expansion just in other states because, um, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, because the federal government funds such a high percentage of the expansion. Um, the normal Medicaid the program, the, fed, the feds usually only pay about 60% of it, um, but they're paying 95% right now for the expansion. So, uh, you know, with, with these other states having accepted expansion there's only 18 states including north carolina that haven't um that's that's quite the burden so taxpayers now are paying over a billion dollars a year for it in other states um now uh, we gave cooper a mostly true for his statement because what he didn't mention was that you know obviously if north carolina were to 
accept the expansion, we wouldn't just keep paying that $1.6 billion. It would increase by hundreds of millions of dollars a year, um, anywhere in the range from $200 million to $600 million in the near future, kind of depending on what study you rely on and you know how much uh, you're expecting the federal government to be paying. So uh, he left out that detail, you know, the extra up to $600 million that we would have to pay on top of the... <laughs> Yeah, and is that where the Republicans keep referring to this as a tax cut? Is that sort of the piece that they seem to be zero or a tax hike? Uh, is that what they're zeroing in on when they they claim that Cooper is trying to somehow raise taxes through this move? Right, and I, I that would also be a good uh, candidate for a fact check. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that claim, I, you know, I'm I'm not too sure that uh, Cooper has proposed any any new taxes. I mean, obviously, it's possible to pay for things in you know any number of ways. You can you know, find extra revenue through taxes. You can find extra revenue just through economic growth. You and can of course his proposal was get the hospitals to pay that extra 5%. Exactly. So um, if, you know, under his, um, under his complete plan, it would be to expand and then get the hospitals to pay. So there wouldn't necessarily have been uh, a tax increase. And that's interesting. Um, the uh, the News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer teamed up, um, I think it was a few years ago, for an investigation into uh, hospitals that had been suing patients who hadn't been paying their hospital bills. And I was rereading some of those stories recently, and the hospitals back then said that they were paying, or that they were basically eating over a billion dollars a year in free medical care that they were just giving out. So even if you look at kind of the high end of the estimates of, you know, that Medicaid expansion would cost the state $600 million a year, you know, if if Cooper could get the, the hospitals to pay for it, that would still be less than they're paying out now and, you know, to people who just show up to the ER and never pay their bills. Yeah. Lynn, do you get a sense for how good the odds are for this Medicaid expansion bid? Is this more talk than it is going to be? Uh, potential reality for the state if if Cooper is able to even have some success in court on this? Well, considering we have a new administration um, and uh, Republicans in Washington who don't want uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act, I mean, they're moving to abolish it. Um, with um, the Obama administration gone, I don't see any avenue for... Um, for Medicaid expansion here. I mean, because Medicaid expansion is under the law that they want to abolish. Um, so I mean, it's, it's possible that um, people could, uh, more people could be insured in other ways, but I'm not sure that there's still an avenue for this um, the way uh, Roy Cooper has mapped it out. Yeah, and I guess that was sort of the, the reason they pushed it so quickly, that it was kind of a race against the clock in the hopes that they could get the the outgoing officials in the Obama administration to to push this through before essentially today, but with the court having put it on hold fairly quickly, uh, that did not happen, and and now we're going to have uh, Trump's folks in there as of right about now. Right. Uh, jumping out out from the Medicaid front, we'll hear probably more about that in the the coming weeks. Although it doesn't sound like there's going to be a whole lot of movement. Um, had a, a couple, one more announcement, I think, this week from Roy Cooper on the cabinet front. Um, he was down to his last three 
cabinet uh, officials to name and picked for the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, which is the agency that oversees all the museums and state parks and historical attractions and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Representative Susie Hamilton, a, a Democrat from Wilmington, um, who's got sort of an interesting background. I think she was in city planning and uh, downtown development in the Wilmington area, was a, a pretty big proponent of the historic tax credit program that was uh, restored in the last year or so was a huge priority of uh, Pat McCrory's administration and his cultural resource secretary, uh, Susan Klutz. So uh, it gives you a little bit of sense for that. Um, and it was this odd sort of double announcement where Cooper also named the chief deputy for that department, Reed Wilson, a former EPA official, uh, I guess, sort of for the state parks side of things uh, of that agency, uh, which leaves us now with two cabinet agencies left to fill, and that's the uh, Secretary of Information Technology, IT, and the Secretary of Revenue. So uh, we're guessing sometime next week we'll get those announcements, and I'm sure since those are incredibly high-profile people, people are going to be on the edge of their seats to see who uh, Cooper appoints to those. Um, <laughs> well, what, one interesting thing with uh, with Hamilton before we move on is... Um you know she's she's from Wilmington, obviously, and I believe that she was a fairly big proponent of the uh, the film tax credits uh, back before those yeah, were. Yeah, and that's done a big issue with. in the Wilmington area. Exactly, a lot of movies were filming in Wilmington. That was probably one of I I would guess probably the the biggest market in the state. You know that, that benefited from that. So it'd be interesting to see. Um, you know if uh, that's kind of. Uh, telegraphing a move that uh you know is going to come with cooper trying to bring back those tax credits that's actually one of the uh campaign promises that he made that uh we're tracking with the cupo meter at politifact nc um is to bring back those tax credits uh yeah for, and we should see if that happens because uh, the republican legislators have not been uh terribly interested in, in bringing that back that program they've got the film grant program uh, which is uh, sort of a scaled back version of it, and there's always the possibility they could add more to that. But um, as far as the the tax incentive program, that really was what stimulated the the movie making industry in the state. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they come around on that uh, and and give Cooper a, a win in that department. Yeah, they were they were convinced to come around, as you mentioned, with the uh, the historic you know downtown revitalization. Yeah. And that took a credits. while, but um, McCrory did succeed in that. So it's it's always yeah. possible. You know, there's there's some degree of, you know, bargaining that takes place through the budget process. Um, and I realize the legislators uh, don't really need to get Cooper to sign the state budget that they produce, um, but it will save them a step if they do, and uh, they don't have to go back and override his veto, which they do have the votes to do if it comes to that. But uh, that could end up being a bargaining chip for, for Cooper if it's something that he really wants to do uh, come budget time, which will be in the next couple months. Uh, We've got some... Uh New uh, administration news. It appears that um, John Gore, uh, the lawyer who defended uh, HB2 in court, is going to be, uh, was nominated to run um, the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. So that has some implications for um, the redistricting lawsuit. Um, if oh, it, uh, DOJ's lawsuit and uh, HB2 and um, another uh, lawsuit uh, involving um, mental health and people in adult care homes uh, being able to live independently. Um, right before uh, the change in administration, a, a few days ago actually, um, this uh, division at US DOJ asked a federal judge to enforce a consent agreement it had with the state 
because the state was not meeting its um, its benchmarks to move people out of adult care homes and independent independent living. Um, they this the state is behind in its um, in the uh, behind schedule in the way it's supposed to get three thousand people into independent living um, by twenty twenty. And um, uh, I guess it's 2,500 severely mentally ill people um, into supported uh, employment by that same date. Um, it may be that uh, the um, Department of Justice changes course um, and decide, in this case, um, since the people who are pressing the state to, um, to do this are, are no longer in charge. Yeah, and that was kind of a last-minute move by the Obama administration folks, right? So there, right. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of time between that news coming out this week and the new administration coming in who right. may or may not see that as a priority. Exactly. Yeah, so that's uh, one thing to watch for. Uh, like Lynn said, HB2 is uh, another aspect of that because the Department of Justice was uh, suing uh, North Carolina and I think some other states over uh, access to bathrooms and public facilities for transgender people. That may be something that, that gets dropped um, and then means one less uh, challenge for, for House Bill 2 type uh, laws in this state and, and elsewhere. Uh, so lots to, to watch with that. Um, Looking ahead to next week, we have the legislative session uh, starting on Wednesday. Um, starting for real this time, they were back uh, a week or so ago for their organizational session. Um, so we've been working on our, our preview that will come out Sunday of uh, what to expect from the legislature and, and a few of the folks to watch. And uh, Lynn, you sat down with uh, the new Senate Rules Chairman who's replacing Tom Apodaca. What, what sense did you get of, of Bill Rabin and sort of how he – uh, approaches his new role? Well, he's a much different presence than Tom Apodaca um, and some of the um, other uh, former rules chairmen we've um, reported on. You know, I, I remember Apodaca and Tony Rand, uh, two guys with uh, very big personalities. Um, Rabin seems uh, much more uh, subdued, but uh, but we really don't know. I mean, I asked how, uh, you know, what kind of mold, um, he fits and he seems to say he's going to cut his own course and, uh, we'll have to wait to find out. But, um, he's a veterinarian, um, uh, from Southport. He's taken a lot of interest in, uh, coastal development issues and, and, uh, coastal rehab issues. He was, um, uh, helped pass a controversial bill a couple years ago on terminal groins, uh, which are s- structures um, on the shore that are supposed to uh, prevent erosion. Um, and he's also um, been one of the leaders or, or one of the co-chairs of um, Senate finance. And, uh, you know, tax laws have been uh, a focal point for the for the state Senate for some time. He said his uh, mentor in the Senate was Bob Ruccio, um, another um, uh, interesting uh, personality in the Senate uh, who uh, decided not to run for re-election. So um, an, an interesting, um, uh, some interesting influences on uh, a, um, a legislator who's going to uh, be able to exert a lot of uh, influence 
in this upcoming session. Yeah, and he's got sort of big shoes to fill with with Tom Apodaca, who we found out this week is now officially a lobbyist. He's uh, uh, started his new lobbying shop and registered to uh, lobby on behalf of uh, the, the cigarette company Altria Philip Morris, uh, as well as the beer and wine wholesalers, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and a couple other fairly big clients. So he'll be back around, but certainly he had a very strong personality in terms of uh, keeping the Senate Republicans in line with the, the leadership's agenda, and it's going to be fascinating to watch if, uh, if Bill Rabin is able to uh, keep that level of caucus discipline or if he takes sort of a different approach to uh, the role. Yeah, uh, Rabin seems to have a, a wry sense of humor. Maybe not as, um, maybe not quite as boisterous a presence as uh, Apodaca. But uh, I asked if Apodaca gave him any advice, and Rabin said Apodaca told him not to take the job. So, <laughs> so uh, it's a tough one. Um, you have to, you know, you make a lot of people angry. Some of them. Um, in your own party. So, uh, yeah, that committee is basically, I guess the, uh, the gatekeeper, right. To kind of decide which, which bills get to progress and yeah, which are going and, to meet an untimely right, death. And he, and, uh, that person says, uh, which committees take bills and, um, and it, the rules chairman has also been a place uh, or the, the rules chairman has been the person to, um, you know, shut down opposition, uh, make sure that, uh, amendments that would embarrass uh, members of the majority party don't get voted on. Mm. So, um, you know, lay upon the table is one of the favorite phrases of the of the rules chairman. Um, and uh, so it's all, it's letting things go and cutting things off. So we'll see how uh, see how Senator Raven handles that. Yeah. And then on the opposite side of the hall, on the opposite side of the aisle, uh, I talked to a little bit uh, the new House Democratic leader uh, this week, uh, Darren Jackson, who's a legislator from the Nightdale area of Wake County. Um, he is uh, stepping into the shoes of Larry Hall from Durham, who is, uh, we learned last week, is the new Veteran, Affair, uh, Veteran Affairs uh, Secretary for the Cooper administration. Um, so he's going to be taking over in that role. And uh, so far, he's sort of taking a note of... Uh, uh, compromise and, and bipartisanship. He says he, he wants to, uh, where possible, work with Republicans to at least what, in his terms, make a bad bill better when uh, Democrats are uh, opposing some of their uh, legislation. Uh, it maybe end up being sort of a more moderate approach uh, than Hall took. Uh, Larry Hall voting record is uh, tends to be more to the left. Uh, he and, and some of the more urban, more liberal uh, Democrats often uh, voted against Republicans in, at times where some of the more moderate Democrats uh, voted with the Republicans. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see uh, if, if there's a little bit more caucus dip- discipline in the House under uh, Darren Jackson than there was under Larry Hall and, and whether there's more uh, bipartisan compromises than, than party line votes that we've seen in the past. But that's uh, something to watch for as, as we get into the session. Uh, and then other things that uh, you can look forward to to reading in our session preview in Sunday's paper or uh, online either uh, Saturday or Sunday, we've got a little bit of what to expect on uh, on House Bill 2 on uh, tax policy. There's going to be some tax cuts likely to be proposed uh, in this session, um, as well as some changes to election law uh, in, in the wake of some of the protests we saw under McCrory. And uh, the other thing to look forward to this weekend, and we're about to give you a little preview of this, um, is uh, our colleague Craig Jarvis, who's uh, not with us on the podcast this week, uh, but uh, sat down uh, this week with uh, the new governor, Roy Cooper, uh, for the first interview I think the News and Observer has, has had with him since he took office. Um, so we're going to take a listen uh, right now. Now uh, to some highlights from that interview, um, and then we'll be 
be back in a few minutes to do uh, Headliner of the Week. So stay tuned, and uh, here's the interview uh, with the Innos Craig Jarvis and Governor Roy Cooper. I think you're going to see some disagreement. They may want to continue to cut corporate tax. They may want to continue to make tax cuts that, for personal income that I believe benefits more wealthy people. And so we're going to have a debate as to whether we invest money that way or we invest money in education. So we're, we're going to be doing a lot of talking about revenue and how we invest it. So I, I don't think that that's easy, easy ground. Okay. Uh, I do think that there is a strong desire to fix the House Bill 2 problem in the leadership of both the House and Senate, both Republicans and Democrats. And I'm hopeful about that because the business community is pretty much united in their opposition to House Bill 2 and what it has done to the reputation of our state and to our economy. So the, the issue is how we get there. And almost every business group I talk to, I encourage them to tell the Republican leadership to put repeal on the floor of the House and Senate. Let it be voted on. If that happened now, is there really enough Republican Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. What has prevented that is, I think, the leadership's desire that there be a majority in the Republican caucuses of both the House and the Senate in order to put it onto the floor. But my argument is that people want us to be bipartisan. People want us to achieve consensus and to work together. What a better way to show bipartisanship is to tackle one of our thorniest issues in a bipartisan way. There are enough Democratic and Republican votes together to get this done in both the House and the Senate. Yet it's just a minority of the Republican caucuses, but taken with the Democratic votes on the floor of both the House and Senate, it can be done. And But it has to be a repeal of House Bill 2. It can't be a repeal plus something that won't work. Now, if we can find something that works, and I mean by works, uh, eliminates discrimination and brings the businesses and the sports back, then I'm all for it. But what we know will work is repeal. And, you know, we may be able to do some things like lengthen sentences of, for, for crimes and uh, other ideas that, that are floating out there. But we need to repeal this law. And for Medicaid expansion, uh, clearly there is significant re resistance in the Republican leadership to do that. But we are entering into a new phase here with President Trump and his administration. And he sent some pretty strong signals that health care for more people is going to be part of his agenda. And you, you only have to look at what Vice President Pence did in Indiana to realize that if North Carolina can get that done, that we're going to be in a better position 
in the new arena if we do it. And uh, I've emphasized to both Senator Berger and Speaker Moore that this can be a North Carolina plan. It can be shaped in a North Carolina way. Uh, we can adjust the Medicaid eligibility to fit a North Carolina plan. We can put in work requirements for people. There's a lot of things that we can do to make this palatable to people who are concerned about it. We also can get the hospitals to make a contribution for the state match and for the state costs so that it doesn't increase state taxes. I believe the hospitals will be willing to step up and do that as long as they can get the assurances that expansion will occur. They're the ones who benefit the most financially from this. Many of the rural hospitals are on the edge and this can be big for them. So I'm still hopeful that some version of Medicaid expansion can occur and I'm also hopeful for repeal of House Bill 2. Well, we have these disagreements. We also have some lawsuits right out of the, yeah. the, out of the gate. Are those, I don't know if the right question is, are they personal or are they no. just constitutional questions that have to be sorted out? Well, you know, we can, we can, we've agreed to disagree on those. And for them to have been passed with such haste and in a way that not a whole lot of thought was put into it. I think it's problematic regardless of uh, how you how you look at it. But for example, we've only challenged in court the things that we believe are unconstitutional. I think it's bad public policy to take appointments from the boards of trustees of the universities from, from the government. But we analyzed it and don't think that there is a strong constitutional argument on that. I, you know, I hope at some point they will cons reconsider that. Hey, whoever the governor is ought to have some input as to who the trustees are at our state universities. But issues like uh, administration of, an, of elections, issues like uh, the situation where they are claiming advice and consent when there's a McCoy versus Berger says that only applies to constitutional offices. So we believe we've got a strong, clear constitutional argument on that. But I've told my cabinet secretaries that don't don't even pay attention to whether that happens or not. If it happens, then you'll be ready for it. But you need to work with them anyway. Mm -hmm. So that that's something that I want them to do. Regardless, uh, we in the media and others, I guess, tend to fall into this. We're, we're making it sound like there's this impending monumental clash between you and the legislature. It sounds like you're saying. Can there be any more? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. More, even further. It sounds like that's not the whole story. I mean, you think it really? You know, it, it, the 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 differences make the headlines. Yeah. The agreements don't and. I have sat, I've sat down with leadership in both the House and the Senate from both parties. Just this past week, we talked about 
economic development. And I was very pleased at the positive response I got to my Commerce Secretary pick, them wanting to work with us to provide the right kind of incentives to get some major economic development expansion. And we're going we're gonna to work together. We have to for the good of our state. And I think you will see uh, some, some positive results out of that. They know I will be a hands-on governor. They know that I will meet personally with the CEOs who are thinking about expanding here. Uh, I'm, you know, some of them bring up House Bill 2, and what I say to them right now is there's a new governor who's opposed to House Bill 2. North Carolina has signaled to the country and the world that we want to be a place that's open for business for everyone. And you're seeing a strong, strong signals from the legislature that they want to repeal it. So I tell these businesses to come and to bring your jobs and help us repeal this law at the same time. So I'm going to continue to work to try to recruit around it. I, just, I, I hope the legislature will take away that hurdle so we don't even have to talk about it. With, with these businesses. But there's going to be some good things happening, for example, I think, in the area of criminal justice. Uh, you know, raising the age of juvenile offenders. Uh, I've, I've always had a desire to do more with prisoner reentry back into society and doing more to help them. Opioid abuse is significant and we've talked about the fact that that's hurting our economy when you've got a number of employers who say a lot of their job applicants can't pass a drug test because they're addicted to opioids expansion of medicaid would help us with that obviously but i think there's a real desire over there to tackle that issue maybe do some more in the area of justice reinvestment so i think you're going to see some areas where we work together and there'll be legislation that we can agree on. I think my last question is, um, is, um, sorry, look at you and I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, uh, you're just to step back, your cabinet nominees or appointments are kind of an emissary to the legislature. I guess what's the overall message? Who, what do they represent in terms of what you want the legislature to know? Well, I tell every cabinet secretary that I talk to that what I want for North Carolina is a better educated population that's healthier and that has more money in their pockets and that they have the opportunity for a more purposeful and abundant life. And I want them to keep that as a major goal in everything that they do. I am amazed at the quality and quantity of talent that we have had to come and volunteer to work in North Carolina government. I think people are excited about the change. They love our state. They want to help. So we've got, you know, if there's disagreement in the legislature, and I haven't heard much disagreement on any of our cabinet secretaries, but it, if there's disagreement, it can't be the quality of the people, the qualifications of the people, or their, or their experience, because they're all 
top notch, like our new secretary for Department of Health and Human Services, you know, ran Medicaid, Medicare at the federal level. She understands it completely. She's been a doctor on the ground helping, working at the VA. I mean, she, she's got an incredible background of, of, of experience and knowledge about how it works. And she will be amazing at helping North Carolina position itself in whatever new healthcare world we find ourselves in in the next couple of years. So we've got people like that who are ready to go to work, roll up their sleeves, uh, manage people's tax money in the best way they know how to make sure people get getting bang for their buck. I'm excited about this job. I have already gone. I, I went to work even before I took office in trying to, to, to do some things. And so I'm going to work hard every day and I'm very excited about this. Your headliner of the week. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. And indeed, it's now time for headliner of the week. Uh, It's Colin Campbell from the News and Observer back here with uh, Will Doran and Lynn Bonner in a head-to-head face-off for this week's uh, headliner segment. And uh, we're going to (laughs) start off uh, with Lynn. Uh, Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to take uh, a group headliner. It's going to be uh, former uh, Pat McCrory's cabinet. Um, We found out this week that uh, the governor uh, gave them some money on their way out, Um, said he was compensating them for for a vacation they didn't take. Guess it's a hundred about one hundred and sixty six. Yeah, I think that was sort of the total among all right. of them, or at least yeah. potential total, uh, depending on how it actually paid out. Yeah, so you know, not bad sums of money if you're suddenly out of a job. So I'll take the um, I'll take the McCor- former Governor McCrory's cabinet. All right, McCrory's uh, cabinet uh, officials in the hopper for their potential payout. I know uh, Governor Cooper's administration has put that on hold for now, so we'll see what uh, what becomes of that story in the coming weeks. And we'll go next to Will Doran. Will, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to bend the rules even more with an even more bureaucratic choice. Um, Bureaucracy <laughs> week. <laughs> And go with the EPA. Um, we learned this week that they had sent uh, the uh, the sternly worded letter that governments are always so fond of sending other governments. Yeah, uh, those, those are real intimidating. To, uh, to North Carolina, alleging some uh, ongoing issues with uh, hog farms out east um, related to health and environmental concerns. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, hog waste is a big problem out there. And... Um, also with racial concerns, saying that some of these issues disproportionately affect minority communities and that uh, a lot of the people uh, who had been affected and were complaining had been retaliated against, threatened with violence, uh, people pointing firearms at them, all sorts of kind of wild allegations. Um, But at the same time, obviously, we have a new administration in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump has been pretty skeptical of the EPA. So I think uh, the guy he nominated is also not a fan of the EPA, if memory serves. Right, yeah, yeah. Donald Trump's uh, would-be EPA secretary is not a big fan of the EPA either, um, or at least some of the uh, the more kind of uh, you know progressive uh, regulatory things it does, like letters like this. So we'll see uh, if this was just kind of a, a last-ditch effort by the Obama administration to, uh, to go after some of these hog farmers in uh, eastern North Carolina, or if this is something that's going to continue into the future under the new administration. But 
Either way, it was in the news this week. Yeah, and we should and, note that uh, the uh, I guess the NC Port Council, which is led by uh, former Domecast host Andy Curlis, uh, weighed in on this and said they're you know working with the families and, and yeah. trying to do what they can to be uh, responsible neighbors. I guess. Yeah, I don't know what kind of nepotism laws Domecast has. I'm not sure if I could nominate Andy himself for the headliners. So. Yeah, well, especially <laughs> since his voice is still used for the headline of the week uh, intro segment, uh, it's probably not allowed. So we'll stick with the EPA on that. <laughs> Uh, EPA in the hat from Will uh, going up against uh, the McCrory cabinet secretaries for their uh, final parting gift from the governor. Um, and I think I'm going to have to go with Lynn's pick on this week. Uh, it was probably the last opportunity for uh, most of McCrory's cabinet folks uh, to uh, get in the, the headliner of the week game. So uh, we'll, we'll give that to them this week and we'll see if their payout comes with it or not. But we will always have hogs. Oh, yes, exactly. They, they will be making a return <laughs> yes. visit, I'm sure, uh, at some point uh, in, in future podcasts. So that's all the time we've got for this week. I'm Colin Campbell for Lynn Bonner and Will Doran. Thanks so much for listening to us, and we will talk to you next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 